You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. General John W. Raymond is the first chief of space operations of the U.S. Space Force. He joins the Post to discuss the biggest threats to the nation in space. Let's listen. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for the Post. Today, our special guest on the Path Forward is General Jay Raymond, who is the Chief of Space Operations for the U.S. Space Force, uh, is the newest member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, General Raymond is a space guy. While he was still serving as an Air Force officer, he was the commander of Space Command. Uh, General Raymond, it's great to have have you with us today. Thanks for joining us. Oh, David, I, I can't thank you enough. I really appreciate it. It's good to see you again. Good to, good to see you, sir. So folks uh, probably don't know a whole lot about the Space Force. Uh, and I, maybe we could begin by your describing for our viewers what you see as the mission of this newly created branch of the military uh, and uh, what you see as, as the nature of, of the threat that you're facing. Absolutely. And again, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. You know, as you showed in that opening video, you showed pictures of and you described a little bit about what the Space Force is and what NASA is. Let me start by saying we're not NASA. NASA is a civilian agency that's all about exploring space and, and planetary exploration and science. We're an armed service and our, our service is focused on uh, providing capabilities for our nation uh, that fuel our American way of life. And they also fuel our American way of war. And so the average American, you know, before you uh, get up in the morning or after you get up in the morning, before you have your first cup of coffee, you have used space on several occasions. We operate the GPS constellation. Uh, we operate communication satellites, missile warning satellites. We launch those satellites into orbit. We, we acquire those satellites. And more importantly today, we protect and defend those satellites because uh, they have become so critical for our nation and for our military there are adversaries that are out there that are building capabilities to keep us from accessing uh, those critical space capabilities for our advantage. And so we're in the protect and defend business as well. So it's a complete cradle to grave uh, from acquiring to launching, to operating those capabilities, to tracking those capabilities, to acting as the space traffic control for the world to make sure that the domain is safe for all, to integrating those capabilities into operations of every single service and, and joint uh, partner that we have, and uh, to make sure that just as every American, when you walk in the room and you turn on the light switch, lights come on, that when America needs space, it is always there. So, Joe Raymond, I want to ask you to take that a little further. As strange as it seems to most of us when we gaze up into the sky, space is now potentially a warfighting domain. And I want to ask you how you think, as a military commander, about defense and offense in this warfighting domain? Well, it is clear, uh, it is clear uh, David, that, that space is a warfighting domain, just like air, land, and sea. And uh, it, it is something that uh, has really materialized here over the last handful of years as both uh, China, which is our pacing threat, and Russia uh, have developed uh, weapons that can either disrupt our satellites or destroy our satellites from on the ground or in space or in cyber. And so uh, our view is uh, that although it's a warfighting domain, our goal is to not, to not get into a conflict that begins or extends into space. Our goal is to deter that from happening. 
And to do that, uh, you have to, uh, in my opinion, the way you do that is you do that from a position of strength. And that, uh, and you do that by denying uh, or, or, or uh, changing the, the deterrence calculus of, of a competitor or an adversary. And that's either denying uh, benefits or imposing costs. And so our goal is, again, to deter that conflict. We do not want to get into a conflict that begins or extends into space. We want to keep the, the domain safe for all. We want to make sure that every American and every one of our global partners around the world has those space capabilities at their fingertips when they need it. And, and to do so, uh, we've got to be able to protect and defend, and we've also got to be able uh, to impose costs if, that, uh, if needed to change that calculus. Something you and I have talked about a little bit uh, in the past is is how deterrence might work in this domain. Well, we know of deterrence is largely from the era of nuclear weapons, and it basically meant the ability to inflict the same damage on your adversary the adversary might try to inflict on you. Is that the same model of deterrence that you're adopting as you think about space? Yes, sir. I, I don't think there's anything. I get asked a lot about you know space deterrence. I don't. I don't view it as space deterrence. I think it's just deterrence, and uh, it, it feeds into the broader deterrence calculus. You can deter in, in multiple domains in multiple ways, and we can we can amplify that uh, from space as well. So again, it's all about you know the the calculus. The deterrence calculus is either uh, denying somebody an advantage or uh, an opportunity or imposing costs. We think there are things that we can do in space that can contribute to that overall deterrence calculus. I think it's broader today than just the, the nuclear deterrence piece. Uh, and our goal is if we can deter conflict from beginning or extending into space, we can then deter conflict from spilling over into other domains as well. You described China a moment ago, uh, General Raymond, as the pacing threat, and I thought that was an interesting phrase. Uh, looking at the testimony that was given by the Director of National Intelligence and the CIA Director this month in their uh, annual uh, threat assessment, they said this about China. China has counter space weapons capabilities intended to target U.S. and allied satellites that China has fielded space-based anti-satellite weapons, weapons in, in space prepared to attack our weapons, and that it has ground-based lasers probably intended to blind or damage sensitive, sensitive optical sensors. You've also talked about Chinese uh, satellite uh, Xijian-17 that's got a robot arm that can reach out and grab other satellites. So my basic question is, is China seeking dominance in this domain? And what can you do to prevent China from establishing that dominance? Yeah, so, uh, first of all, there is, and I agree uh, with the testimony that, 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 you, that you just read from, from DNI, there is a full spectrum of threats, everything from reversible jammer, jamming of communication satellites to, uh, and GPS satellites to lasers that can blind or dazzle uh, our satellites, as you described or uh, satellites on orbit like the SJ-17 that has that robotic arm, uh, or missiles that can launch from the ground and, and blow up a satellite like they did uh, in, in 2007 when they blew up uh, one of their own satellites to demonstrate this capability and, and blew that satellite into 3,000 pieces of, of debris. Uh, again, our goal is to deter that. And the way that you do that, in my opinion, is, is uh, to be able to uh, to do so from a position of strength. So there's not just one thing. It's a multi-domain effort. 
uh, it's the full weight of the joint force that that will uh, that will be employed to to be able to to deter those uh, deter that conflict from happening. Uh, it's going to require uh, an increase in how we train our operators. And we've already done that with the establishment of the Space Force. It's going to require increased uh, partnerships with our allies, and we've we've taken that from what used to be largely one-way data sharing uh, arrangements to now two-way partnerships, just like we enjoy in, in other domains, to where we operate together, we train together, we exercise together, we war game together. And, and today, for the first time, we're actually building capabilities together. Um, uh, it's partnerships with uh, our interagency partners. So you've talked about uh, the intelligence community today. We we enjoy the best relationship that we've ever enjoyed with the with the intelligence community. In fact, uh, earlier this week, I, I was out at Vandenberg Air Force Base with the DNI, and we spent about a day and a half together, uh, along with the, the director of the National Reconnaissance Office. Um, and it's and it's developing partnerships uh, with our commercial partners. And if you look at what's going on in space uh, in all three sectors, whether it's the national security space sector, which is uh, you know the Space Force and uh, whether it's uh, civil sector, which is NASA, and going back to the moon, you know, with the goal of going back to the moon here uh, in, in the coming years, and and with uh, commercial industry, which is very visible and and, and has a, it's a terrible terrible word to use in, when you're describing commercial space, but an explosion of commercial space activity. Um, we think all of that comes together and provides our nation advantage, and and would uh, give an adversary pause uh, from from beginning or extending a conflict in the space. I want to come back to this question of partnerships, both with other parts of the government and with the private industry. But you mentioned something uh, talking about the Chinese having shot down a satellite and created 3,000 pieces of debris that made me think about the problem of, uh, I'm going to call it for, for use of a better term, space junk, all these debris objects in space. I've seen accounts that there are 30,000 objects in space, only 4,000 of which are actually satellites. Uh, space sounds like it's getting messy. And I'm wondering uh, whether, whether you've begun to think about picking up the litter, uh, whether there's some way to, to, to clean up the mess so it's less potentially dangerous. Absolutely. Your, your, your stats are, are pretty accurate. We track about 30,000 pieces of debris. That's up, uh, or 30,000 30, objects in space. Of that, the vast majority of that is debris. A couple of years ago, the number of active satellites was probably only 1,500. What we're seeing is an increase, a significant increase in the numbers of satellites. And largely, they're commercial satellites in, in great numbers in low Earth orbit. You'll hear a term referred to as proliferated low Earth orbit constellations. Um, and so we're seeing an increased amount of objects that are going in space. The reason why that's happening is the cost of launch has gone down and, and satellites that are smaller uh, are more operationally relevant. And so uh, what used to be great power competition between then the Soviet Union and the United States is now down to students at universities launching satellites. And so their trend is more things in space. There's about um, uh, probably a half a million other objects that are too small for us to track. And so clearly the domain is a congested domain. We act as the space traffic control. We warn the world. We, we do all the analysis to make sure that two objects in space don't collide. Uh, and we warn the world if, that, if we see that that's about to happen. So for example, if there's a Chinese satellite on orbit and it's about to, to potentially collide with a piece of debris that they created uh, when they blew up their satellite, we'll warn them and tell them to maneuver. 
and, and satellites maneuver to, to stay uh, awake as, uh, to keep from uh, colliding with other objects. We do that because we want to keep the keep the domain safe. But the trends on this are are going uh, to where there's more objects. So how do you how do you solve that that challenge? Uh, the first thing that you do is you quit creating debris in the first place. And so it, it's irresponsible behavior to, to take action where you blow a satellite into 3,000 pieces of debris, for example. You increase your engineering standards to make sure that a, a satellite at the end of a life, at its end of life doesn't break up into pieces. You increase your engineering standards so when you launch something into space that you don't litter the space domain with debris upon launch. And so our are, and you share data broadly uh, to be able to make sure that objects don't collide. And so our, our, our view of this is the way you solve this debris problem is to help from creating debris in the first place. There's a lot of folks that are out there thinking through um, how would you then go clean up space? It's a big challenge. Space is, is a, a very vast domain uh, and objects in space are going you know, 17,500 miles an hour just to stay in the, just to stay in space. And so it's a big challenge. Our, our goal is to be responsible users of space, uh, uh, to be transparent in what we're doing to keep the domain safe for all and to, and to uh, limit the creation of debris in the first place. Just to press this issue, because it's an interesting one, would you, would you be an advocate in the debates that are going on of, of having some effort, maybe a, an international cooperative effort to, to, to clean up some of the debris. Does, is that a thing that people should be working on for the future? I would encourage people to work on that. Uh, uh, I, I think it's going to be important. Uh, you know, most of the objects in low Earth orbit eventually will, will come down and you know, will burn up in the atmosphere. It depends on uh, the size of the object and how high the object is. Uh, uh, but I, I would encourage people to continue to continue to work on it. I would also encourage the other thing that I'm sorry, uh, other thing I would encourage is norms of behavior. And, and I talked a little bit about responsible behavior in space. Uh, the, the, right now, it's the wild, wild west. They're, they're short of you can't put a, a weapons of mass destruction in space, or you can't build a military uh, base on a celestial body. That Those are both mandated out of the Outer Space Treaty in you know, 1968. Other than that, it's pretty much the wild, wild west. And we are also working very closely with our international partners and our interagency partners to try to um, put together a framework for here's how we're going to operate, and then to operate that way and demonstrate that good behavior like we do each and every day, and then to attract uh, partners to, to adopt those same things. I wanted to ask you about about partners and and other. Uh, key actors in space, uh, starting with the return of the uh, SpaceX Crew-1, if I'm describing Absolutely. that the right way, tomorrow. Um, I assume that will be principally a NASA uh, SpaceX mission, but will, will Space Force be involved? What's your interface with, with that event uh, tomorrow? Yeah, so on that specific event, um, when we launched, when, when those crew members launched into space, uh, they, they launched off of Cape Canaveral. Uh, and the range that we operate in Florida. And so we support the launch of that. We, uh, we have got a very close partnership with, with NASA. Uh, the, one of the astronauts that you just talked about, uh, Colonel Mike Hopkins, is a, is a Space Force member that we gave to NASA and to serve as a NASA astronaut. Uh, for the, for the uh, landing of, the, of the, the capsule and the crew, 
Uh, we'll track that object just like we track all the other objects in space. One of our highest priorities is to make sure that our astronauts that are either on the space station or coming home from the space station are, uh, are safe. And then actually U.S. Space Command, which is the war fighting organization, if you will, the operational command uh, for space has a uh, recovery mission that will support this uh, uh, support this event as well to make sure that uh, we can safely recover those astronauts upon landing. Would you foresee, uh, General Raymond, greater collaboration going forward between the Space Force and NASA? Uh, so many of the uh, missions do seem to have some overlap. Uh, does it make sense to have more coordination and integration? Yeah, we enjoy a great partnership today, a really, really strong partnership. We've, we've enjoyed that for 50 years. I think it's important that we distinguish between the two organizations. We have different missions, uh, but we operate in the same domain. Uh, we operate, uh, we have members of NASA that sit in our operations center that does all the tracking of, of objects, again, to help us protect and defend those, those, uh, uh, those astronauts in, in the International Space Station. We have just here since the establishment of the Space Force, uh, we have partnered with NASA for some training opportunities. There, there, there are some capabilities that they have uh, that uh, that they used in training uh, their uh, procedures when they were it started back in the Apollo days that we thought would be really helpful to us as we train our crews. And so we entered a partnership uh, with NASA on that front. There's also, I mentioned on the norms of behavior uh, front, NASA has a program called the Artemis program, which is the program that's going to return astronauts to the moon. They have something called the Artemis Accords, and that's the international partners that they have that are that are part of that uh, that mission. They're they're developing standards and norms of behavior, and so we think there's some opportunities there as we also develop those norms of behavior. And I think there's opportunities to leverage the partnerships that we both enjoy. And so I really believe uh, that. Uh, although we're separate, we operate in the same domain, there's partnership opportunities that allows us uh, to do things more effectively, allows us to save costs, uh, and to allows us to provide for our, the security of our nation, either through exploration uh, or through national security. I'd, I'd like to take a moment and, and uh, congratulate uh, former Senator uh, Bill Nelson for his uh, recent uh, confirmation as the new NASA administration, administrator. I really look forward to working with him in the future as we build this build this partnership and continue to strengthen. And uh, another question about uh, government uh, space uh, uh, agencies, organizations that, that have similar uh, functions. Um, you mentioned visiting Vandenberg uh, Air Force Base. Uh, and your relationship with the NRO, the National Reconnaissance Organization. Again, a common sense question would be, gee, do we really need two military organizations that are that are doing these space-based activities? Uh, it's like the question people ask about Cyber Command and the National Security Agency, but are, are you convinced that we need both an NRO and a, a Space Force? Yeah, let me just say uh, right up front that the partnership that we enjoy with NRO has never been better, never been better. Uh, we operate very closely uh, with that organization. Um, we, we, uh, we again, we have a shared view of the of the space domain. We have a shared view of the of the need to protect and defend. We have a shared conops on how we go about doing that. Uh, we share people. We about eight hundred guardians in the space force are are assigned. 
uh, to that organization. Um, we share uh, capabilities. We develop capabilities together. And so that, those, that partnership has never been stronger. We operate uh, uh, our command and control centers together, focusing on protecting and defending. But there is a different mission set uh, today. They, they are in the intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance business, and we are in the, the DOD space business. So there's a different mission set. Uh, the law that established the Space Force back in December of 2019 uh, uh, did not include that then or as part of it. Uh, our job is to work very closely with them for advantage, and I'll tell you we're doing that today. And uh, General, maybe you could just briefly tell folks uh, who don't know the origin story of, of the Space Force. This is a new uh, branch of the military. Just briefly explain why after so many years when the Air Force was uh, mining space, when you as, as combatant commander, Space Command, were part of the Air Force, why, why was the decision made to create a separate force? What are the benefits of that? I think there's a lot of benefits, uh, and I think the decision to do so was absolutely the right decision. Um, the United States, this has long been debated. This was debated for you know, 30 something years. And over the course of the last, I'd say five or six years, the debate really picked up. Uh, and the thought was we're the best in the world at space. And, and that is absolutely true. We, are, we remain the, the uh, premier space power in, 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 around the globe. The thought was uh, our, our competitors, our adversaries are moving really fast. China has gone from zero to 60 really quick. And not only have they they've gone from zero to 60, they've operationalized these capabilities that we've been talking about uh, throughout the course of this interview. And so the thought was, if you stood up an organization that was focused on this primarily, uh, that you could stay, move at speed and be able to stay uh, ahead of the threat. And so the advantages of, of establishing uh, this service is that we purpose built this from, uh, from scratch for the domain in which we operate in. We elevated the leadership to a service chief position and a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, that allows us to ensure that uh, space is fully integrated into the thinking across the department. We elevate from a service chief uh, it, our, our voice in requirements. We elevate our voice in budget. We elevate our voice in being able to have international partners. And in fact, after the United States established the Space Force, uh, France, the UK, uh, Australia, and Japan have all elevated space in their organizations as well. Now, we elevate our voice and our ability to inter interact with commercial industry. And so on all accounts, I would tell you that we are better postured uh, today, just 18 months uh, after establishing the Space Force uh, than, than we were even back then. And we were the best in the world at space. We're the best in the world today. And, and because of the, the changes that have been uh, made, I am convinced that we'll remain the best in the world going forward. One of the good things about uh, about creating something uh, new is that you can break from past practices and procurement uh, in rules and procedures. You don't have legacy systems because you, you are new. And I want to ask you uh, uh, what you're doing to try to uh, see how the Space Force can, can buy things develop things uh, more efficiently, more quickly, uh, make better use of the incredible, you used the word explosion earlier, it's right, explosion of, of, of commercial interest in, in space. How can you tap into that effectively and at lower cost? Yeah, I, I think there's, I think, uh, David, this is probably the biggest opportunity that we have. Our, I, would, I would bet on U.S. commercial industry any day 
there were the, the leaders across the, the globe. And, and I couldn't be more proud of what's going on in the commercial industry. And it, it's from multiple sources. Historically, what has been commercially viable are commercial launch operations and big commercial satellites uh, that provide uh, communication satellites. Uh, those are what was commercially viable. As launch costs have gone down, largely due to commercial space, and as technology has allowed smaller satellites to be um, more relevant, uh, we now have opportunities to expand that partnerships. And if you look at what commercial industry is doing, commercial industry is doing in, in uh, months what uh, it has taken uh, the government to do in, in years. We have got to go faster. We believe uh, with the service, uh, the Space Force, we can build this service that has a more fused relationship with, with commercial industry. Just look at what NASA did. I mean, they launched, we launched a, a rocket from Florida a commercial rocket with a commercial capsule with a NASA crew from a from a uh, a DoD range, a Space Force range, and sent it to the International Space Station. We really believe that the business model that that is uh, developing with commercial industry and an assembly line type of model will allow us to diversify our architectures to be able to do so at much lower costs and to actually posture ourselves. Uh, for advantage in the future. So one of the big things that we worked on in the first year of our existence is being able to develop this capability development process that moves shifts towards digital. And it's a, it's a, a digital force design. You know, what does the architecture of space need to look like? What's the, what's the satellite architecture, if you will, need to look like? Uh, how, do you, uh, how do you do the requirements? And to do that requirements process at speed and do it digitally, how do you acquire differently? And so we reorganized our, our uh, space and missile system center out in California to be able to tap into uh, commercial industry uh, more effectively. We've synchronized uh, unity of effort across the department with other acquisition organizations uh, that, that also do uh, space acquisitions. We've, we've built a, a, or a plan, a, how do you test these capabilities and do it at speed? Our goal is to uh, harness and leverage commercial industry to reduce uh, costs for the taxpayers, increase capability for our nation, and to make sure that anytime anybody needs space, it's there. It's a, an incredibly fertile area of innovation. It's some of our best known uh, uh, entrepreneurs, uh, Elon Musk, our own Jeff Bezos, the Washington sure. Post are, are passionately interested in, in space. So I'm sure you're going to work with them. I want to ask you a, a, a question that's a little bit off the wall maybe, but hey, what the heck, we're talking about, about space. Two former uh, CI directors, John Brennan, uh, and, and Jim Woolsey have said that based on on what they know, what they what they think, they they think it's possible that there's intelligent life in the universe that's trying to communicate with us. And thinking about our conversation, I, I wonder what would Space Force do uh, if we were pre pre prevented presented with evidence that that, that there were other uh, civilizations trying to to connect with it with the united states would it be treated initially as a, as an issue uh, that the military would handle or would be the other other parts of the government i'm sure you must have thought a little bit about this what, what can you share with us well i i'll tell you that the priority for us today is focusing on building a, a service that can protect and defend uh, the national security interests that, that we face near term but as we build this service we're building the service not just for today and tomorrow but for the next hundred years and so uh, we need to build this service to be able to, to respond to any threat that, that our nation 
that our nation uh, might face. And if something, if that were to materialize in the future, uh, then I, it'd be, I'm sure we would have a part in this uh, as, as part of a broader, uh, broader whole of government uh, approach. But um, our, our goal is is a little bit more near term, is focusing on what it is that we need to do today to make sure that uh, that every American uh, has the space capabilities they need. It's really hard. It's really hard for them to understand um, how how reliant we all are on space because you can't see it. Uh, you know, satellites are traveling 17,500 miles uh, an hour uh, far overhead, and you, you, it's hard to have that connection. But every single American uh, relies on space each and every day. It underpins every instrument of our national power, whether it's our national security, our economic, our diplomatic uh, instruments of national power. And our job is to make sure that that's, uh, that, that foundation for all those remains uh, unharmed. I'll save more Star Wars questions for the next time we, we invite you back. But I want to close with, with a, a question of space diplomacy, if you will. From where you sit uh, as our commander chief of this uh, warfighting uh, entity, the Space Force, what do you think about the, the wisdom of international agreements about space that go beyond the ones that exist today? Does it make sense to pursue that, to seek more rules, more limitations, or is this one of those situations where it would be so difficult to verify compliance with the rules that were set that we're just better off not going down that road? What do you think? Yeah, I get asked a lot, you know, what what do you want your uh, successors to have? What kind of technology do, do you want them to have? Uh, I answer that question this way. I want my successors to have some norms of behavior, some rules of the road. And so it is. It would be very tricky to be able to ascertain um, uh, and to verify uh, what's going on in space. Uh, I am not naive to think that if we have rules of the road, that everybody's going to just follow them. But I think if we have them, and we can build those with our international partners, that we would at least be able to identify those that are running the red lights. Uh, and so um, I, I'm a favor of, of coming up with norms of behavior. I'm a I'm in, I'm in favor of working that with our allies and our partners, and we're doing that each and every day. Uh, and I, I, again, our goal is to keep this domain safe for the world. We're, we're doing so by our actions, uh, and uh, I'm really, really pleased with where we are and how we're postured to do that after just 18 months after establishment. I feel like we've just begun a conversation about one of, one of the most interesting, challenging new things uh, that the Pentagon is doing, that, that our country is doing as a whole. So I want to thank General Raymond. Thank you for coming to talk to us today, and we hope you'll come back. I, David, I sure will. I, I, I wish we could do this for longer. It's, it's always uh, good to talk to you. Uh, I'm really proud of the Guardians of the Space Force. We have about uh, 5,200 folks that have been handpicked to come in the service. Uh, they come to work each and every day um, focusing on providing for our nation uh, and, and uh, protecting and defending this great country. And I couldn't be more proud to represent them, and I appreciate the opportunity to tell our story and, and to have a chance to chat with you and your, and your uh, viewers. So thank you very much. We'll, we'll see General Raymond again down the road, I hope. Uh, I'll be back on Monday with an interview with Jane Harmon, former uh, member of Congress, former head of the Woodrow Wilson Center, who's just written uh, an interesting uh, new book that discusses 
uh, national security issues she's been involved in. So everybody have a good weekend. Thank you for joining Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.